right. Thank you, my friend. All right. Well, good to see all of you here today. Um, hey, we're just like zipping through Lent. Next week is Palm Sunday, everyone. Can you believe that? Get ready. The kids will be here. Palm branches will be here. Um, so next week, Palm Sunday, we have Good Friday after that, 7 p.m. on Good Friday. And then Easter Sunday, of course, we'll be here celebrating together. So begin to think about the next couple of weeks. We have little invitations in the lobby. If you would like to bring someone with you, those little postcards are great to just grab. And then you can pass them along to friends, coworkers, things like that. They're English on one side, Spanish on the other. So just wanted to remind you all that Easter is just around the corner, so it's exciting. All right, well today, as I said, we are in the season of Lent. Um, this Sunday marks the beginning of the fifth week, and the last couple of weeks we've been kind of doing a little mini, kind of a capsule series, if you will, um, focusing on, on some of the attachments that sometimes we form and really thinking about what it would look like to detach from those things and to move more toward the life um, that God is offering us. And so a couple weeks ago, Mark um, spoke about status. And last week, Josh uh, talked about offense. And then today, we're going to be talking about insecurity, about detaching ourselves from insecurity. So I think you'll notice that these messages do, they, they interact with each other. There are places where they overlap. And um, I think that's interesting, but also each one stands alone. And so the prayer here, the desire here, is not just that we take a look at ourselves and realize how horrible we are and then go home with our heads hanging low, but the prayer is that as we're examining ourselves, as we are identifying some of the areas where, where we are, are attached to things that, that we shouldn't be, that God would be moving us to a place of detaching from those and, and moving toward him and all that he has to offer, because I think he is um, he's excited about us and all that is going on. And so um, we're going to be in John 5 today, John 5, 1. So if you want to turn there in your old-fashioned paper Bible or if you, you know, have a phone with a Bible on it, we'll allow it. Um, but no texting. Um, sometimes when I finish preaching, I get over there and people have texted me during the sermon. I'm like, no, that's bad. Don't do that. Um, we're going to be in John 5 today, but before we read our scripture, let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here. We know that you are already moving among us this morning, and so we just ask that you would stay with us. I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that are open this morning, God. We say that we are ready for you and anything that you want to show us this morning. So come now and teach us through your word. Come now and move among us. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in John 5. The passage I'm going to read is a little long, but I think we can do it. We have it in us. So we're going to start at verse 1, the healing at the pool. So it says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. And now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. 
one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work, is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. So we're going to stop there, but there's a lot more red letters, and so you can go home and read everything that Jesus had to say. But this is a really interesting story. So let's kind of go back to the beginning, and we're going to break it down a little. So we have this man who has been sick for 38 years. So I could say he's been sick for a lifetime, because I will be 38 in nine, nine months, nine months. So you guys have time to buy your presents. Um, not 38 yet. But this guy had been sick for a long time. And we don't exactly know what was wrong with him, but he was fairly immobile, it seems, and he could never get into this pool that he was trying to get into, that, you know, trying to get healed. And so Jesus walks by. He doesn't know it's Jesus, of course, but Jesus walks by, and he asks him the million-dollar question. He simply says, do you want to get well? And there are a lot of ways that I feel like this guy could have answered. He could have said yes. He could have said absolutely yes. He could have said definitely yes. But I feel like yes would have been in the answer. I'm imagining if I had been the 38-year sick guy at the pool. But it's actually really strange. He doesn't answer Jesus' question. When Jesus says, do you want to get well, notice that he actually responds with all the reasons why he can't get well. Well... I don't have anyone to help me into the pool. All these other people have other friends. They are quicker than me. They've got more resources. The system is rigged. Like this guy has this whole spiel about all these reasons that he can't get healed. And so he doesn't actually answer the question. And so immediately we begin to notice at the very beginning of the story that this man kind of, he has this narrative. He has this story that is his thing, that he's kind of living by. And we recognize that he does have a health issue. He has a very serious health issue, and that's not anything that we want to diminish. 
Uh, he is, he's very sick. But what has happened here, as often happens, is that this thing, this big thing in his life, has become the thing. Everything is revolving now around this illness, and his identity, in many ways, has become wrapped around this thing. And not only this, but you notice that he hangs out here at the pool all day with all the other pool people. And so not only is his whole life kind of wrapped around sickness and illness and this whole story, but all of his people are kind of in the same boat. So his community is, is kind of perpetuating the same narrative. They're all there because you couldn't go to the temple. You were unclean if you're one of these people. You didn't have, you couldn't work. A lot of them had been removed from their families, and so this was, this was their community. It was a community of, of illness. And so everything begins to revolve around this, and everything has to do with this idea that I can't get well. And so in some ways, even a bigger obstacle than his own illness is this mindset of, well, nobody's going to help me. I, don't, I can't do it. And so this morning, as we're talking about insecurity... I want us to look at the life of this guy because his whole identity is based on other people, on what other people can or can't do for him, on what other people are willing to help out with. He doesn't know when his help is going to come. He doesn't know where his help is going to come. And, and so this becoming like his whole identity, this is a very insecure way to live. And so as we look at insecurity this morning, this guy is kind of our picture. He's our example case. So as we continue on in the story, we notice like in one moment, Jesus completely circumvents the whole system. So he comes along, he asks him the question, do you want to get, oh, story, story, story. Jesus simply says, okay, get up, take up your mat, you're healed. Interesting that Jesus doesn't like help him into the pool. He doesn't engage with the narrative like, well, actually, don't you think that, you know, he goes around all of that. No dip in the pool necessary. He completely heals the guy and in the moment, like, gives him a whole new story. And so we see, you know, as we're looking at this guy, and then we see Jesus. Jesus, he doesn't see the same limitations. He doesn't see the same obstacles because he's not operating out of the same narrative. And so he can simply say, he sees this guy, and he's like, yeah, get up, walk, be healed. And he is. He completely goes around the narrative and the system that this man has put in place and is living in. And that could be a very fascinating end to the story. Man is pool, by the pool, man gets healed, Jesus, end of the day. But actually the story goes on, and I find the second half of the story almost like more interesting than the first half. So we have these religious leaders, and they are not happy. And we're not surprised, right? At this point, if we've been reading the Gospels for a while, we know that the religious guys are never happy. So the religious guys are upset, and they immediately focus in on this guy, because apparently when he did pick up his mat and walk, he went to the temple, because he hadn't been able to go to the temple in 38 years, so stop by the temple. And so immediately they look at him, and they're like, hey, buddy, you know the law says you can't do that. You know, he's like got his sleeping bag, you know, he's like, hey, I've never done this. You know you can't do that. The law says you can't do that. And let's look at the guy's response. Immediately... What does he do? He points to someone else. He's like, oh, well, the guy told me I could do it. The guy, you know, the guy who healed me, this tall, wavy hair, blue eyes. No, just kidding. 
That's not what Jesus looked like at all. Sunday school lied to us. Um, but he immediately like points to someone else. And so even though he's been physically healed, he can now walk, he's still not, in, in a sense, like he's still not standing upright on his own two feet. He's still blaming and explaining. He's still pointing at someone else to explain his situation. Well, that guy told me to do it. It's interesting, huh? And I think this can happen a lot. This can happen even to us. Even after experiencing some healing, even after experiencing Jesus and having an interaction with him or having a transformative moment, we can still fall back into some of those old patterns, right? Oh, well, that guy made me do it. That's just like his first instinct is to, is to explain himself by pointing at someone else. And what this can do is this can create an unhealthy dynamic. Because as I'm pointing at you to explain me, I'm leaning a lot on you. And then if, have you ever had someone just like lean on you really hard? And then what do you, when you move, then they collapse and then they blame it on you. Um, but this guy is still leaning a lot on other people. And he's still explaining himself and blaming other people for his situation. So let's continue in the story. Jesus then comes back to the man. Another interesting thing, he comes back and finds him. He could have just slipped away and that was it. But he actually returns, verse 14, finds him at the temple, and he says this very curious thing. He says, see, you're well again. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now we could do some weird things with this verse, right? We could draw some weird connections and we could say, oh, you know, if you're sick, then you're sinning, or you're sinning, or you're sick, or something we're not going to do that. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. That could lead to some bad theology. But what we are going to do is identify here Jesus' heart. Because he comes back to this man and he reveals himself. You know, hey, the name's Jesus actually. Um, by the way, stop doing this. You're invited to a whole new life. Like what we see here is Jesus' heart. Like you're, don't stay where you are. You have all these possibilities now. I've given you a whole new story and a whole new life. So live it. Embrace it. Walk in it. And isn't that always Jesus' invitation to a whole new life and a whole new story? It wasn't just about the physical healing, but it was about the whole life transformation. And so then our man, I wish we knew his name because we just keep calling him the man. But then the man goes back to the religious people and he says, oh, figured out his name. His name was actually Jesus. So at this point in the story, the heat, the pressure transfers from the man now to Jesus. Now the religious people are officially mad at Jesus. Hey, man, you've got to quit doing this stuff on the Sabbath. It's poor form. And notice how Jesus responds. Because Jesus, in this case, in this sermon, is going to be our picture of security. He is our ultimate example of a secure person. Because he doesn't actually care if these religious guys approve of him. And he doesn't actually care if these religious guys are really excited about what he's doing. He's going to go about his business. Because the thing is, being secure does not mean that we're overly confident. It doesn't mean that we're pompous and that we're puffed up and that we think too highly of ourselves. But being secure simply means that we know who we are and we live out of that place. 
And that's what Jesus did constantly. He knew who he was. He was sure of his identity, and he lived out of that place. And so in these final verses, we see it as these religious leaders begin to harass him. All Jesus needs to do is point to the Father. Like, you got a problem with me? Well, you can talk to my dad because he's the one who did all this. And he was completely sure of it. He was completely confident of the Father. He was completely confident of his authority and what had then been given to him as the Son. And he knew who he was. And so all he had to do was point to the Father. And so this is the thing. When our identities are tied to one another and we're tied to the approval or the affirmation of someone else, we're not really free. And that can be crippling. We're constantly going to be afraid that we're not going to be enough. We're constantly be afraid that someone's not going to approve of us. We're constantly going to be blaming and pointing and explaining and, and feeling like, oh my gosh. And the thing is, it's not just something that affects us, but insecurity, it affects entire communities. An insecure community of people cannot love each other well. We're not going to be able to take risks. We're going to lack vision. An insecure community is marked by jealousy, competition, and comparison. Because there's not enough approval, there's not enough affirmation, and so I'm going to get what I can get and I'm going to hold on to it because I might lose it. An insecure community will not see and respond freely to what God is doing. We won't have eyes to see it. Like this guy at the pool, Jesus walks up and says, do you want to get well? He starts telling him this other story. He doesn't even have eyes to see it when it's there. This could be my help, and I, I can't even answer his question. And what we want to understand about insecurity and security, it, it, it's not like we're walking around with our noses up in the air, you know, saying, well, I don't, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. Because met, you've met those people, right? Well, I don't care what you think of me. I'm just going to do it anyway. Often that's just an excuse to bulldoze others. So we're not looking to become a bunch of bulldozers. And it doesn't mean we're looking to all be fiercely independent. Well, I just don't need you. I don't need anybody. I can do this on my own. Or I should be able to do this on my own. That's not true either. The, the message here is not that we don't need anyone's help. We actually desperately need each other. We need each other's help. We need to be in the community. We know from the scriptures that the kingdom of God is lived out in the community. It's not lived out on our own. But this is the thing. As we stop depending on each other for identity, as we stop looking to each other to meet needs that we were never really meant to meet, we are actually going to be more free to encourage one another and to love one another well and to build one another up and to give away love and leadership and kindness and life to each other because we are not going to be depending on one another for things that we were never meant to depend on each other for. Does that make sense? I hope so. In the season of Lent, I've been reading a book by St. Teresa of Avila, and she was a nun in the 16th century, so very different context, but she, her writings are interesting to me, and a lot of them I still find very relevant and so she talks a lot about detachments in her writing, you know, because the nuns, they got to detach from a lot of stuff. Like, they couldn't wear this dress. Um, you got to give it all away. But she has a section in her book where she's talking about 
detaching yourself from the affection of others, like needing, needing affection from others. And that could initially sound kind of weird. And she asks this question, and it's kind of old English, so we'll translate, but she says, so do you think that such persons, these are people who no longer need affection from others, do you think that such persons will love none and delight in none save God? So basically, like, if we can detach ourselves from this need of, of other people's affection and approval, like, does that mean we don't love people? Does that mean it's just me and God, that I'm only loving God? And this is her answer. She actually says no, but they will love others much more than they did, with a more genuine love, with a greater passion, which a with a love which brings more profit. And that, in a word, is what love really is. And she goes on to say, such souls are always much fonder of giving than of receiving, even in their relationship with their creator himself. And I think she's on to something here. When I am not needing from you the things that you were never meant to like fill up in me, then I am freer to love. I'm going to love you better. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive and give from you better if I'm not attached to you in an unhealthy way. And that's what Teresa was saying. And that's the kind of community that I want to be a part of, a place where our security is rooted deeply in the Father and who the Father says we are. Because my attachment to you, if I'm depending on you and only you to tell me I'm okay and to prop me up, you are eventually probably going to let me down. No offense. I've probably let many of you down. I don't know. But that's the thing is we're deeply rooted in the Father as we look to this example of Jesus who simply said, I'm doing what the Father's doing. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> oh, Jesus was into hashtags. Then we are free. We are free to love and to live well with each other. And this is the type of community that I want to be a part of, a community that loves God, that is convinced that God loves us, that sees his image stamped on one another and knows that his image is stamped on us, a community that understands the kingdom story, the big picture of what God is doing and what he's inviting us into, and a community that then finds their lives and their identities in that story. When my life, when my identity, when my security is firmly rooted in the Father and in the story that he is writing and who that then says that I am and who he says that I am, I'm going to be free. And this has to happen to us on a personal level. And as it happens to us on personal levels, it ripples out and happens on a community level. And so what does that look like for you personally? What does it look like to be secure, knowing who the Father says you are and knowing that that is enough? Like, do you have that sense of security, identity, I know who I am, and I'm living from that place. For me, for Megan, there are certain things that over the years that I have come to know and be convinced of. I know that I am God's girl. I know that I am God's pearl. I feel like he, like, he knows me as a treasure, like as his special girl. I have been convinced. There's something that God told me several years ago that never leaves my head. He said, Megan, I've given everything to my daughters. He's also given everything to his sons, but I'm a girl, so I think he talks to me like that. But he said, Megan, I've given everything to my daughters, and everything I have is yours. And I've actually become convinced of that. 
that God has given me everything that is his and that it's all mine and I have access to it. I know his love. I have experienced his rescue. My story has changed. It's now being written with his. And that's who I am. And that's the place that I want to live from. But I know that this isn't always easy. Like it sounds good. Oh, well, just root your identity in God and you're good. Good to go. I know that there are a lot of competing narratives. There are a lot of stories that are really, really hard. And it takes work, I think, to move back to that identity that we were always meant to have. I know for me, it has been a process. Those of you who know me a little bit better know that I, have, I haven't had a 38-year sickness. I'm thankful for that. But I've had a really dysfunctional family situation. I have a father who is not trustworthy. My dad took way more from us than he gave us. And so it took me a long time. And it's still a process to figure out, well, what does it look like to root my identity in the father? Not my earthly father, but the father who loves me, the father who is perfect, the father who is dependable, the father who I can trust. That's been a process. And that's probably something that's going to be worked out in me for the rest of my life. But God has used a lot of things. He's used you. He's used a lot of you who are in this room. He's used morning after morning after morning in the scriptures and in prayer and just like learning to be vulnerable and learning to pour out my heart to him and learning that he's trustworthy. He's used spiritual direction. I've been doing that for about three years and it has been a game changer for me. He's used healing prayer teams and lots of boxes of Houston Vineyard tissues. Um, you know, like there are different, and for different ones of you, there are different tools that God is going to use to begin to root that identity in you deeply, convincing you of who you are, that you're his, and that that is all that you've got to be. And in that place, you will be free. You will be free to love others the way that you want to love them. You will be free to give yourself in the ways that you want to give yourself. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on back up because we're going to be responding to the Lord in worship. But as I've been thinking about this this week, I've just been really excited about it because there's so much potential for a community that is not crippled by insecurity, that is not all leaning on each other in weird, unhealthy ways, needing some type of affirmation that we're unable to give each other but a really secure community, a community that is rooted and established in the Father and who he says we are, that community is going to be a place where all sorts of new things begin to flow. And I think many of you have experienced that on a personal level, and I think the more that we move toward that as a community, the more we're going to see it on a big level too. Things like freedom and joy and generosity and creativity these things are unleashed and these things are possible when our identities are firmly rooted in the Father and when we know that we are secure. And so we can start to take risks and the possibilities begin to open wide. And the things that we thought were the limitations are no longer the limitations. Like, oh, I thought I was just going to be here forever, but I could be here? I didn't even know that was possible. 
like this guy at the pool, like he pretty much had the life plan set out. Well, unless this one thing happens, I'm just going to be here forever. Well, actually something different happened, and then he ended up invited back into life. He, he went from isolation and sickness and the small story that was really all about him to an invitation to a life that was in community again, that was connected, that was about others. Like, there's a big, huge, wide possibility opening up for those of us who begin to really root ourselves in the Father. And in that place, in that place of security, that's where we begin to see and understand and to be really free to respond to whatever the Father's doing. Just as Jesus said, he's like, I can only do what the Father is doing. This has been like, well, it's been a vineyard thing for a long time. It's been a, it's been a Jesus thing from the beginning. Um, but it's been, it's been talked about in the vineyard from the very beginning too. Like we do what we see the Father doing. But we need to be free enough. We need to have eyes enough to see what the Father is doing. And so if there's some level of insecurity in you that, that you're still kind of going back to an old narrative or there's still some, you know, everything is based on what this person thinks or what this person has said or what... I would invite you to come to the Father, to take those next steps toward freedom. Because that's his heart for us. And it's possible. I know it's possible because I've tasted bits of it and I've seen it and I want more. Because once you taste it, you want more, right? You taste something good at least. So we're going to stand now. We're going to respond in worship. You say I'm strong when I think 
say is true, God, what you say is true. So there was a group that got together this morning um, to ask the Lord, what do you want to do with us today? And so we have some specific words for prayer. Um, If you're on the ministry team, I would invite you to come on down. They're going to be here and they're available for anything that you need prayer for, um, health or finances or family stuff or whatever it is. Um, They would love to pray with you. So come and get prayer. Um, But there were a few specific words this morning. One had to do with fighting cancer or um, being part of treatment. Another one is to obey is better than to sacrifice. If that means something to you, then you'll probably know that. Um, Some physical stuff, the bottom of the right foot, someone who's experiencing neuropathy. Um, The top of your neck, I don't know what part that is, but that's the top part. Um, Difficulty processing food. Um, or if you're feeling heaviness due to a financial burden, if you feel almost like, like you're leaning over from that heaviness, um, come and get prayer. God has something 
before you this morning. So again, I would invite you to get prayer for anything going on. Um, so this week, I would encourage us to move toward a place of security, toward a place of identity. Um, as God is showing us where our insecurities are, as those things come up, um, be bold and, and ask him what he'd like you to do because there is freedom and there is life for us um, much more than what we've experienced. And so I just pray that we begin to see ourselves the way that he sees us, that we begin to see that we're not as boxed in by these limitations as maybe we thought we were, um, but that there's another story for us and one that is deeply, deeply rooted in the Father's love and in his approval of us and his affirmation of us. Um, yeah, I think that's a good challenge for the week. But as we do that, this is our prayer. May the living God, the creator of all the heavens and the earth, may he richly bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he smile upon you and fill you with his peace. You have been and continue to be extravagantly loved by the Father. Go do the same. Jessica's going to continue to play. We're going to worship a bit longer. You're open. You're free to come and get prayer, and then she'll dismiss us in just a moment. <laughs>